Money Rules or Money Rules. Here at Hold My Wealth, we are all about empowering financial success in our community of listeners. We hope you find today's topic both informative and helpful. Hi, and welcome back to the Help My Wealth podcast, Money Rules or Money Rules. I'm your host, Stephen Logan, and with me as always is Hamish Ferguson. And today we have our special guest, Tony Knight. Mm. Tony, thank you for coming. Welcome. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> Tony is a psychotherapist and a presenter specialising in anxiety, burnout and trauma. Tony helps people to get past their past, improve their ability to relate to others and help um, and make helpful decisions to increase their energy and professionalism. Tony believes that mental training is the foundation for using our minds to create rich and a meaningful life. So thank you so much for coming, Tony. Mm, looking forward to it. Yeah. Look, Help My Wealth was delighted when Tony came on board to create our behavioural psychology modules. And I must say that they've actually become a bit of a foundational training for our Help My Wealth community. And for me personally, I actually really enjoy them. I learn a lot through those modules. So thank you so much for coming on board and doing that. Yeah, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed doing it. Mm. Yeah. How about you, Hamish? Yeah, look, uh, I've always wondered whether be our, our mental state and how we think about things is is has more influence over how we manage our money than what we give it credit for. Oh, 100%. And, uh, and I guess seeing these modules and just really unpacking them has really helped to cement that and, and, and almost make that theory come to reality, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that helped my wealth, both with the podcast and with our training. You know, we're all about uh, empowering people's, you know, financial journey, but part of that, it's not just about money, is it? It's, mm. it's about that holistic life experience. So having you come on board and and give that experience and that and that professionalism and education was just yeah fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, I loved being part of it. Yeah. So look, I always ask all of our guests here on the show if you could go back and tell your eighteen year old self one piece of advice from everything that you've learned, what would it be? Wow. There's a lot I'd like to tell my 18-year-old self, I have to say. Just I'd like, one. I'd like to sit it down, have a nice long coffee, <laughs> few hours, <laughs> you know. Um, look, I, I think of all the things I'd like to tell her, perhaps the most important one would be to not let fear get in the way mm. too much of big decisions. There's, there's a place for fear mm. and, you know, negative feelings are not bad they feel bad, mm. but they're not bad. Negative mm. feelings can be really, really helpful up to a point. Yeah. You know, a little bit of fear is good. It keeps us kind of, you know, checking that I guess we've got the right information, that we're making the right moves. You know, it keeps us cautious. But I think that when we let fear get out of hand, it can stop us all to get altogether from doing things that are really important in life. And I think my 18-year-old self was probably a little too afraid of the world and thinking mm. that, you know, she couldn't deal with it. And so I would love to have been a lot bolder and made some bigger decisions. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that's what I would tell her, that, you know, fear is something that is good but it can be managed and it doesn't need to hold you back. Do you think that um, that's almost something that, that you, you have to learn over time? 
you know, do you think that's something that you can actually tell an 18-year-old now and that they would actually grasp and get? Or do you feel that even if you went back and actually spoke to that, you know, young 18-year-old, Tony Knight, that that she would get it? Or do you feel that some in some ways experience is, almost has to be the teacher? I, th- I think you make an important point there, Steve. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's great to have someone there to tell you that at one time. But really, um, travelling travelling alongside someone, you know, perhaps as a, a guide, a mentor is going to be a lot more effective because, yeah, it's one thing to say, look, don't let fear hold you back. And maybe 18-year-old Tony would have looked into that and Mm. gone, well, what does that mean for me? How do I Mm. make that a reality for myself? But being 18, you know, I I doubt I would have done that. Mm. And so it is a journey because when you think about what fear is, it's telling you that you're not safe. Yeah. It's telling you that there is a threat. Mm. Okay. Um, and so it's one thing to go, those things that you're afraid of, they seem like they're threats, but in fact they're not. Mm. I think that having the knowledge is one thing. Mm. Knowing is a great start. Mm. But if we don't feel that we're safe, if we don't feel that, you know, we can get on top of this and move forward on, you know, some important life decisions, then that knowledge is going to largely go to waste, you know. And my clients all the time see me for the same kind of problem. It's like I know that I should be okay. I should feel safe. I should feel good about my life, but I don't. Mm. And so, you know, if it was just as simple as saying, well, you know, look at all the good things going on in your life, snap out of it, Mm. you know, um, I wouldn't have a job. (laughs) (laughs) We could do that for each other. You wouldn't need psychotherapists. It's not that simple. Um, It is an experience. It's a bit of a journey. I'd like to think with the right kind of tools, the right kind of support, for most people it won't be a long journey, Mm. but nevertheless, you're right mm. about that. And do you think there was opportunities that you missed because of that fear? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I am a very late bloomer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. look, I, I, I think I'm getting there now. I'm getting there now. But yeah. it has taken a long time for me, you know, to feel safe enough to take some some risk, for example, you know, becoming self-employed and yeah. starting a business and yeah. marketing myself and getting clients. Even 10 years ago, that would have been, you know, on my radar, but something that I felt that I wasn't capable of doing. So, yeah, mm. definitely. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, just that statement about fear, all right, and thinking about today's society even and, and you know, the fear that's out there around the climate or, yeah. you know, around um, just, you know, are we going to blow ourselves all up in 50 years or, or tomorrow or whatever, like COVID, the Ukraine war, absolutely. whatever. Um, oh, there's so, plenty of things to get afraid of. So it's interesting how just even that, just the, just over the generations, that that same thought process as an 18-year-old, all right, is relevant today. It's you know, Things haven't really you know, changed in that sense. Does that make sense? Mm. Or Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that there's, you know, there were things to be afraid of back then when I was younger and mm. there still is today. And, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that we need to just ignore all of that, but, you know, the truth is that when it comes to things on a larger scale, there's very little that we can do as a human, as yeah, an individual right. human. Mm. You know, and that's not to throw our hands up in the air and say, look, it's all beyond us. Mm. We do what we can do. But we also recognise that it's better to focus our energy 
on the things that we have some control over. And that's mm. going to be a much, much smaller circle than thinking about the wider world and, you know, geopolitical problems and climate change and, you know, those kinds All of really of big issues. Yeah. In fact, I have many clients that because they are so focused on thing, those things and feel so unable to do anything about it, they effectively become quite paralysed mm. with mm. their fear. And mm. when you think about it, that doesn't serve anyone, mm. particularly the individual themselves. And so I often say to people, look, you know, bring your circle in and focus on what you can control. And there's not much in our world that we can control, actually. Mm. On most good days, we can control our behaviour. And that's about it. Yeah, I think also for our society, like media, be it traditional media, be it social media, has recognised that fear is a great way to motivate response. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when you look on those things, it's, it's quite fear-driven, isn't it? A yeah. lot of articles, a lot of stories, a lot of issues are all centred around that as well. So it's, it's, I think it is hard in a way for people to actually pull themselves out of that, particularly if you're, you know, going down that direction already. Absolutely. Look, I think all forms of media promote fear because humans are designed to pay a lot of attention to things that are, are threats. It's, mm. it's part of our survival mechanism. So when you think about it, mainstream media, the news headlines are always quite macabre. You know, there's yeah. that old saying, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm. You know, <laughs> social media is the same. Even advertising is really you know, preying on our fear of being inadequate, you know, in the eyes of key people, society in general, and then saying, here, we have the answer for you. So, yeah, it's all around us. And I dare say it's almost countercultural. It's almost an act of rebellion to be able to bring our focus in to the things that we can control and go, I get that that's out there. I'm not burying my head in the sand. Mm -hmm but I'm going to bring my focus into what closer, into what I can do about those things and anything else that matters a lot to me. And I think that's very powerful. So, Tony, if we reflect back on that 18-year-old self, uh, you know, many people equate their current happiness in relation to how they're going financially, how they're going with their goals, how they're going with success. What, what would you say to, to her in regards to that? So achieving goals can certainly make you happy, mm. um, but I think there's a couple of important considerations there. Mm. Um, number one, we know that achieving goals is a good thing, but that the happiness that comes from achieving goals in itself is not going to last. Why? Well, because no internal state mm. lasts, you know, when you think about our thoughts and our feelings, they're moving through us. They are temporary experiences that happen to us. They change all the time. Mm. And so achieving a goal is certainly a cause for celebration and being happy, mm. um, but it's no substitute for fulfilling life. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, when people say, well, look, I, I just want to be happy, it's, it's a valid thing. Of course we want to be happy. Uh, but really when you drill down into what that really means. And researchers have done this, of course. What people really want is a life that is fulfilling, satisfying. They want contentment. And so this is a much bigger concept than just mere happiness, which, yeah. as I said, is a temporary state that comes and goes. We enjoy it while it's there. It's not going to last. Um, 
And so we don't want to build a life around that. And so I would say to my 18-year-old self, like, you know, by all means set yourself some goals and enjoy it when you achieve them. But it's like Grandma used to say, you know, it's all about the journey. Mm -hmm. It's the person that we become on the way to achieving our goals that really makes the difference, that creates that sense of purpose, fulfilment, that brings us together as a group, that enables us to learn and grow as people, that allows us to give to something bigger than ourselves. It's all those things that make life really, really rich and meaningful. That's a good life, not mere happiness, which yeah. is temporary. And so if we talk about that, um, you know, that, that, that self that has now now grown, uh, you know, you've had <laughs> considerably a, older, considerably yeah. old. yeah. you've had, look, you've had a very colourful and varied life, you know, and you've had different roles and responsibilities and all the rest of it. But, you know, especially now as a psychotherapist, I'd have to ask the question, what do you think is, is most understood about you? What, what do people see and assume with you that is probably the most misunderstood thing? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I, I think that it would be probably that psychotherapists somehow have all the answers, that yeah. you know, we don't go through the, all the other feelings. Yeah, you and never get sad, like other, you never get depressed, you never get fearful, right. you never get angry. Right, yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, I do think that having been a psychotherapist has been such an incredible blessing to my life. Mm. You know, I love reading about psychology and I love really thinking about how to apply that to the real world, mm. which was, I guess, what I did when I collaborated with you guys um, on the project. Mm. Um, but, you know, even despite all the, the richness of those learnings and how to apply it to my own life, you know, we humans, we don't operate well on our own. Mm. Uh, and so what that means is that I can know a lot of stuff, but it doesn't mean that I necessarily implement it well all the time. You know, I still need other people to pull me up, to mm. keep me in line, you know, yeah. to tell me to pull my head in, you know. Um, and so it's allowed me to have incredible humility uh, for my clients and for people who are struggling, you know, People often think that they are broken, that there's something wrong with them, that they're failures mm. when they don't seem to be doing well in life, particularly if they have to come and see a psychotherapist, which many Australians will avoid at all costs mm. because of that sense of failure that they mm. feel. But I say to people, that's, you know, that just that's just good strategy. Having an advisor, a helper, is good strategy, which is, you know, why people come to see the two of you as well. You know, they could make financial decisions or, you know, house purchase decisions on their own, but why would you do that mm. if you can have someone that has more expertise, more experience, that knows more about that particular topic, mm. why wouldn't you, you know, link with them? And it's the same with basic psychotherapy. You know, and so even though I am a psychotherapist, I would be much more willing now to see a psychotherapist or someone because I know that I don't have it all together, that I still need as a human being yep. that extra brain mm -hmm. that allows me to 
function so much better. Yeah, yeah. And look, there was a period of your life where uh, where you spent, you know, quite a bit of time with what most people in society would consider the, the the very rich, you know, the famous, the successful people. I mean, for you, how has that affected you in regards to, you know, your goals and and your dreams and your aspirations heading out from there? Yeah, that's that's right, and it and it has. You're right, Steve. Those experiences have been quite formative. So just to expand slightly, my husband and I had an opportunity to live, well, twice actually in the past on resort islands. Mm. Um, one of them, the more recent one, was in 2003 in yeah. the Caribbean, um, a small deserted island that basically was like um, a playground for, for the rich. Yeah. Um, it's only about three... Mm, Two hours, I think, direct flight from New York. Yep. Uh, it's nice and warm. And so we saw a lot of the rich and famous come in. We saw extreme wealth. Yes. Um, and all that that entails. Yeah. And, you know, from what I know, they actually spent, it wasn't just a, a weekend holiday. They were actually living there a lot of the time. And so you actually were there with them and seeing them in their daily lives, so mm-hmm. to speak. It wasn't just a, a week away. It was actually they're here for six months or they're here for a year or they're here for, you know, that period for, of time. For some of them that was true. Some yeah. of them had actually bought villas on the island and mm. so spent some of their their year uh, yeah. in those villas. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, I think that for a lot of people, uh, you know, we all have to different degrees aspirations to become fabulously rich or fabulously wealthy or fabulously famous or mm. some degree of that. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. for you... Um, actually experiencing that lifestyle, how did that change your view of of wanting to make those your goals to you know to achieve and attain? Yeah, it's I describe it as sort of living like a millionaire, a multi millionaire without having been one. Yes, because I was living in this beautiful, you know paradise kind of island mm. in a nice villa. With all the trappings that go with that. A- absolutely. And I've done that twice. Mm. Um, and so I feel like I know what it's like without having been extremely wealthy myself. I mean, mm. you know, obviously I'm privileged compared to a lot of people in the world, mm. but certainly, you know, quite humble compared to some of the people that, you know, to the top, I came in contact you know, 1%. with. Yeah. And the impact that had was helping me to know for certain not just to intellectually know, but to know for certain, to feel that extreme wealth was no ticket to a fulfilling life, mm. you know. Now, I'm not anti-money, mm. not at all. I think money has its place. And, you know, one of the great things about money, as far as I can see, is that it gives you options, you know. It gives you a lot of options. It gives you freedom mm. um, to choose. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a great thing about it. But mm. Arguably, and I think the research backs this up, after you get to a certain level of wealth, additional money doesn't add a lot to the quality of your life. Mm. And so, you know, um, it's it's one of those things that is nice to have and certainly important to have if you don't have enough. Mm. And so I would think that if people don't have enough money, it should become a fairly important goal yeah. to buy them enough choice to be able to live in their society according to their values. Mm. But it's our values that make all the difference. The money allows us to more options to honour our values, to live what I call a values-centred life and 
you know, in my work, in all my work, that's the aim of what I do is to help people to identify their values. And by values, I just simply mean what's most important to you, what really matters, you know. Let's face it, it's not the money that you're after. It's what it what it can give you, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I mean, you know, I've often been, um, I guess, confronted by stories of people where they'll talk about, you know, genuinely happy societies or content societies being sometimes the ones that have got the least mm-hmm. right? and they actually don't have the options. You know, mm. like it's like, well, this is our life. We're happy. We're content. Mm. And sometimes options in themselves can almost confuse us, can't they? It is possible to have too many options. That's (laughs) that's absolutely true, Hamish. Um, I think that, you know, in those societies people's expectations are are quite different Mm. Um, and so, you know, they're connected in with their values and, you know, for many of those societies I think it's all about connection, Mm. you know, connection to family, connection to community, I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, so I can't really speak, you know, much in that area. Mm. But these are the things that by and large we know as human beings do make a difference to our happiness. And so as I said, like, you know, in a Western culture, um, you know, money can be quite helpful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> They're definitely yeah. not saying, you know, we shouldn't have money, all right? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, or plan for it or, you know, work out how you're going to... Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just it's it's a perspective, isn't it? Yes. It's it's really just saying, well, I've got to be careful not to let this thing rule my life and, yeah. and the, absolutely. the consequences of it. Absolutely. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a there's a um a really fabulous American researcher called Tim Kasser who wrote a lot about this. He has a wonderful book called The High Price of Materialism. He doesn't moralize at all about money. What he does is research I guess, the impact of pursuing material goals. And when he says material goals, he's talking about money, fame, you know, uh, appearance, those kinds of things. And, you know, surprise, surprise, people that tend to prioritise those things are less happy than other people. Um, And it's simply because prioritising those things will often take our attention, time and energy away from the things that we know actually really do make quite a positive difference to our well-being, to our contentment. And, you know, it should come as no surprise that those things are things like connectedness to other people. Humans are a hyper-social species. You know, we need to be around each other and, in fact, loneliness is such a big issue in Western societies that quite a few governments of Western countries have appointed a minister for loneliness. Really? It is such a big issue. Yeah, Yeah, some recent research showing that loneliness sort of equates to, you know, a considerable amount of smoking, um, you know, when you talk about the impact that it has on your lifespan and your well-being, you know. So, you know, so... What we're saying is money in itself can be a really useful and great thing, but more often than not it's a means to an end. And what is that end? The end is our values. Mm. And so arguably money's not important at all uh, in terms of our connectedness to each other. We don't need to be wealthy to be able to spend time together, to enjoy mm. each other's company, you know, mm. to, to be a community. 
but in Western society, some of the other things that we value do cost money. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, it's it's one of those things. And so I think it's I think it's great to focus on money. I think it's great to, you know, be able to provide for ourselves as long as it doesn't come at the great expense of the other things that are important, connection to each other, our health and wellness, and, you know, some of those other really important values. I heard someone once say that uh, most people say family is important to them, mm-hmm. you know, and so planning for a family, you know, you find a partner and you plan for a family, that's really great. But if all you ever did was actually just having one child after the other, at some point that's no longer going to be what you're actually trying to achieve with when you say you want a family and a planning for and having connection, you know? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's about keeping um, our values in mind mm. um, and continuing, I think, to review them from time to time. Our values tend not to change greatly over our lifespan, but it is important to, to be flexible about mm. which values are the most important ones in any situation. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to be rigid about how we apply yeah. values, you know. So family is very important, but there are going to be times when our family does need to take second place or even third place mm-hmm. in some situations some of the time. Mm-hmm. And that's what we mean about being flexible. In fact, the term psychological flexibility is considered to be one of the key hallmarks of good mental health. Mm-hmm. So we're not rigid in how we um, apply our values or honour our values in our life, but neither are we chaotic in terms of not having anything and just kind of going from one whim one to the other. next and being really pushed around by our feelings. Our feelings are can be useful but they're not generally a good guide in and of themselves for our behaviour. So, look, taking you back to that story of the, the Caribbean, mm-hmm. I mean, is there anything from there that you that you miss in that sort of, you know, opulent lifestyle that, that you were able to experience back then? No, I, I would I'd be happy to go back there because it's a beautiful place and just to experience it again for a short period of time, I wouldn't want to live there again. In mm. fact, it was actually despite the, the paradise nature of it, it was actually quite a hard place to live mm. and for the, for the reasons you'd expect and that is the disconnection from family and friends. So we had something of a community there among the staff that lived there um, and some of those people were easy to live with and some weren't. It was a small island and so, you know, you were kind of in each other's lives quite a lot. Mm. That was nice, but the people that really make all the difference, you know, the extended family, the friends, you know, a lot of those, you know, a lot of those people we didn't see for an entire year. And Mm. so, yeah, I I wouldn't have that life again if it meant that I had to sacrifice having those people in my life, which because it's so remote, it did mean that. Yeah. And coming back to Australia, was that that hard for you to go from one lifestyle to the next or did you sort of feel like, no, it was time and it was easy transition? Absolutely. We could have stayed longer. But after a year, I had had enough. And so coming back to Australia was a no-brainer. It was an absolute joy and zero regrets. Yeah. 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 And that was despite the fact that we were making very good money over there. Yeah. You know, we we could have obviously been a lot wealthier if we had stayed. But, again, when you sort of, like, consider your values as you're making a decision, it's like, look, the money's great but it's coming at too high a cost mm. to the things that matter more. Mm. Mm. 
So look, getting onto that, you know, uh, in regards to you being a psychotherapist and, and that's your, your profession, um, how has that affected and how has that helped you in regards to your finances, your, your future planning, your direction? Mm. Um, yeah, it actually has been really helpful, again, because, you know, I'm not just a psychotherapist. I consider myself a full-on psychology nerd. I read <laughs> about psychological matters all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I love knowing more. And, of course, you know, really psychology research, I mean, there's certainly a lot of it around, but it, it hasn't been researched for as long as other topics. Sure. Um, and, and so, you know, there is so much more to discover, so much more to learn, so many things that we think are kind of established facts, you know, are still changing as the research gets better. Mm. So it's a really exciting area to, you know, to read in and to know about. And it's affected my life in so many positive ways. But I think one of the ones that's most obvious to me is the ability to manage feelings. It's not something that was taught at school at all when mm. I was there. I think some schools now do have some instruction in it um, and I still think that a lot of the information that I see in the literature is not great mm. when it comes to working out what do we do with these experiences called feelings, you know. Because I've done the reading and the research and because I explain it so often to people, I feel like I've got a whole lot more clarity around what's going on in here and on good days, you know, I, I can take quite uncomfortable, quite difficult feelings and, you know, manage them a lot better than I would have if I didn't have this information. And, you know, to reference something we were talking about earlier, that doesn't always mean I can do it on my own either. Mm. We manage feelings better when we're together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, Hamish would agree, um, you've only got to talk to you for a short time about your profession to see, uh, you know, how much joy and and how invested you are uh, in that and in the and in the concepts around psychotherapy and psychology and oh. helping people and, 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 you know, doing those sorts of things. I could bang on for hours about it. <laughs> well, I won't. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's interesting in the sense that, you know, you go back 50 years and most of us worked with machines. Yeah. So now most of us work with people. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, you can pull apart a machine, put it back together again, and, and typically it will behave in a similar fashion. Whereas, you know, pulling apart a human being and trying to put them back together again is a very different thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always go well when you do that. <laughs> yeah. So. No, that, that's true. And, in fact, uh, I think one of the things that re that reminds me of, Hamish, is that... Um, the OECD has done some research on uh, the key skills, if you like, for 2025 and found that um, the, the skills that are going to be most in demand in jobs worldwide in 2025 are mostly those so-called soft skills that were kind of devalued in the machine age. They, mm -hmm. they were considered superfluous and a waste of time. Um, but I think... Eight out of ten, I think it may have been, of the top skills um, that employers will be looking for are all around being able to manage ourselves and manage our relationships with other people. So how do you do that with your own family? You know, I mean, how do you teach them to manage their relationships? How do you teach them to, you know, be able to go on to a career that that in, in a world where soft skills are really important? Yeah. And if I can add to that, sorry, and especially when, you know, one of my catchphrases to people whenever they've married a psychologist is, oh, you know, that's got to be tricky at times. 
<laughs> yes, I think my husband would completely agree with you, Hamish. Has Absolutely. your husband ever found himself, you know, washing up dishes or mowing the lawn and thinks to himself, what, what, how did I get here? Why am I doing this? <laughs> I've just been managed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I haven't asked him that question. The answer is probably. Um, I also have a 17-year-old daughter and I don't pretend to be able to tell her much at all about what to do, you know. I, I joke with my clients all the time. You know, I said earlier that there's not much that we can control. Mm. Yeah. Definitely not other people, right? Yeah. yeah. Even yeah. our kids. Yeah. Like we can have influence on a good day, right? But yes. that's not control. No. Right? So, you know, I, I try to have these talks with, with my daughter and I think sometimes she might actually be listening. <laughs> Hard to tell, but really. Other times she just probably goes, Mum's just doing her work thing on me. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think so, yeah. I, I think... Um, Probably a better answer is to try to model that stuff myself. Yeah. So, you know, um, I'd, I'd like to think that I'm better at that than I used to be. I think I'm a work in progress, however, and, yeah, don't pretend to sort of, you know, be anything close to a perfect parent. Um, that we all. Yeah. You, you know, we, we all just do our best, don't we? But, you know, I, I try to be that person that I would like her to be. I think it almost comes back to what we talked about before, those myths around um, different professions. You know, uh, Hamish is a financial advisor, so therefore his finances must be just going through the roof and perfect, you know. Um, you know you're in, a psychotherapist, and so therefore your family should be perfect, you mm. know, and that and that you should be perfect and, yeah, the, right. you know, and things around that. Yeah. It's a bit like, um, you know, I remember talking to someone who's, whose father was a um, principal, and they were saying it's just so hard because even the teachers would assume that I was going to be the perfect child at school. You know, I was going to be the most studious. I was going to be the, you know, the one that did the, the most amount of work, you know, yeah, got yeah. no detentions, got never got in trouble. And uh, I think almost to a degree that it sort of created a little bit of rebellion there to, yeah. to not want to be that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We refuse to be put in a box. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. Oh, and look, you know, I still remember playing tennis a lot as a kid and, and um, you know, my coach sort of said, you know, this concept of coaching and I was I just made an assumption that a tennis coach must have been better than the number one player. Mm. And he was going, no, no, most of the time it's a tennis coach that didn't actually cut it as a player. You That's know? right. But they've then gone to develop other skills right, that have helped other players become great. Mm. So, you know, it, it is that, um, you know, understanding that even though you, you learn something and there's a practice behind it, as, as you said earlier, it's it's that human behaviour still gets in the way. Mm. We're, we're still all fallible creatures that are going to make mistakes. Um, mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually had yeah. a staff member once complain that they were better at me than, than you know, that they were better at the job. And uh, I sat back and I smiled at them and said, yeah, yeah you are. That's why I employ you. Yeah. If you weren't better than me, I, I wouldn't employ you. I'd just do it, do it myself. Yeah. That doesn't mean that I'm not here to actually train, direct, help, guide, you know, point out where you could be doing better. Mm. And I think that coaching thing is actually so important because you're right, you know, the number one tennis player doesn't look for a better person to, to be their coach. There is no one better. And the number two player is not going to coach them. Quite often they probably don't have very good skills as a uh, interpersonal skills, you know, mm. they're probably just so focused on on what it means to be a great tennis player that that's all they do, you know. Mm. 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 So anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. So, you know, for you, if we, if we reflect back on, on, on your life, reflect back on, you know, all the things that you've done and, and where you've been, I mean, is there, is there specific lessons that you have gone that really helped me to, to push ahead, you know, quite dramatically? You know, we've talked about the idea of understanding the difference between happiness and contentment, you know, not, not being fearful in regards to taking experiences or, or taking opportunities, you know, mm. are there any other areas that you've sort of thought, wow, that that has actually been quite effective for me? Mm. One of them that occurs to me now is um, the importance of not avoiding stuff. Yeah. So there are always going to be things in life that when we think about them or we do them or we come into contact with them are going to make us feel uncomfortable or downright distressed. And so, you know, I, I guess I'm, you know, I'm talking here about, you know, f- feelings can be very uncomfortable and we don't want to have those feelings. There are things we don't want to think about. So we try to avoid the feelings. Mm. Um, there are people that we don't want to see. So we try to avoid them. Um, there are situations we've been in that, you know, we want to avoid again. Mm. And, and look, avoidance is at times, it is useful, mm. particularly as a short-term safety strategy. Mm. So, you know, for example, if I've just been through, you know, some kind of major trauma, you know, it's probably going to be good for me to just take things a little bit easy and to make my life a bit small for a while. Be a bit kind to yourself. Yeah, that's mm. right. That's right. Mm. As a long-term strategy, avoidance is really not good. Mm. We all tend to avoid stuff, Um And so I think that a really key life skill that I've observed for me has been to be, again, you know, it comes back to that fear stuff really, you know, it's recognising that actually I do have what it takes to be able to deal with the things that perhaps I don't want to look at or I don't want to experience. So, you know, if you think about avoidance behaviours, that can be anything from, you know, drug or alcohol addictions so that they're not facing certain feelings like, mm. you know, a sense of failure or distress. Um, avoidance can be overthinking things, you know, trying to seek a lot of reassurance to avoid that feeling of, you know, anxiety and what if. Avoidance, have, I done, have I done the right thing? Yeah, that's right. You know, um, avoidance can be not being prepared to go to p- certain places, see certain people, you know, activities like driving a car, Mm. you know, avoidance comes in so many different flavours. And I think one of the best things that people can do is to, you know, with the help of someone else if need be, but to actually ask themselves those hard questions, what are the things that perhaps I'm afraid of Mm. that that I avoid? Um, It's a tough question to ask, but it's a really courageous one. And, look, arguably, you know, I might have a morbid fear of snakes and, you know, because I don't come across many snakes in my life, um, it's not going to be an important one to sort of, you know, to overcome unless I really want to. But some of the things that people fear, for example, I work a lot in the relationship space and some people are very afraid of intimacy, mm. you know, being close to people, showing affection, receiving affection, feeling safe and stable, there is a sizable proportion of people, probably more than half the population, that, that have difficulties 
with that, either because they're anxious that if people knew the real them, they would abandon them and go and so they're quite anxious or that, you know, being in a relationship means that other person is going to hurt me uh, and things are going to end badly. And so, you know, when you start avoiding everyday things like relationships, you just know life is not going to be good. Yeah. I mean, look, I had a colleague that I work with when it comes to it comes to avoidance that uh, they they would use the, the idea of saying yes. Uh, and I think they actually genuinely meant it. So you'd ask them to do something or you'd talk about an area that needed to change, whatever else, and they'd go, yes, I'll totally do that. I'm on board. And uh, they'd look you in the eye and they would, you would think they're on board and they would do that and then you realise a month later that nah, nah, nothing's changed yeah. and they're actually not on board and they, and they didn't want to do it. Yeah. But the avoidance that they have actually developed was to, was to be positive in the face of that and then actually just not not change and not do anything. And and they, they potentially also um, avoid the discomfort of actually being honest and saying, no, I'm sorry, Steve, I can't do that. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, that's right. Avoidance comes in so many flavours and we can honestly get a significant way through our life and not realise that we're avoiding things. And sometimes, as I said, significant things and so I think one of the best things people can do and I've I've certainly I'm certainly on that path myself is looking carefully at the things that we avoid Mm. and asking ourselves I wonder if there's another way forward Mm. I wonder if I can find myself safe enough to realize I don't need to avoid that anymore I can I can deal with it yeah that's an important one for me it's interesting when you think about fear because I I guess I've, I've quite often reflected on the fact that fear is it's almost an easy word to use but then there's other words behind the fear like mm-hmm. embarrassment or pride or a lack of acceptance or confidence or whatever it happens to be yeah. is that something that you know in your role that you, you typically try and dig into those things as well yeah. it absolutely is Hamish so the research is really clear that when it comes to managing feelings well you might think of your feeling as you might describe it as fear, Okay, which is, look, it's a decent starting point, but actually the more granular, the more specific you get with being able to name your feelings, generally speaking, the better you manage them. Um, and so you're right, you start with fear, but then you might break it down and, and say, well, it's a bit of this, it's a bit of that, it's a bit of something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's a couple of reasons why that's effective. Number one, I think, you know, when you experience fear, it's it's really happening in the the fear centres of the head, which are not um, they're not open to a lot of reason, right? They're they're very primitive, they're very reactive, they're impulsive. Um, when we have to start to name our feelings more specifically, now we're engaging the thinking part of our brain, mm. um, and so when you do that, now you're not gripped by those fears anymore. We're not taken captive by them. Now we can start to, you know, think things through, get some solutions happening. Um, But I think also the the granularity that I was talking about, um, you know, that you referenced is also about recognising that feelings, including fear or whatever other descriptive terms you use, are potentially signals they're temporary signals, but they're signals. They're coming from the body and potentially they're carrying a message. And so fear 
can help you to kind of go, what is it that I'm afraid of? Mm. But if you have a more specific term, you're probably more likely to work out what it is that needs your attention. If anything needs your attention, sometimes the answer is nothing needs your attention. Sometimes the answer is that feeling's coming up. It's an old feeling. I know why it's there. I'm just going to let it be there and I'm going to get on with life. Sometimes that is the best way forward. But if this is a new feeling and you want, you know, rather than going, it's not quite fear, I think it's embarrassment, now you can start to ask yourself a better question. You know, what is it that's embarrassing me? Mm. You know, is this something that needs my attention? Is this a, a problem that I can solve? Do I need to? Is it worthwhile? But I think it is important to recognise that sometimes we're not going to know what we're fearful of, that it, it does yeah. take time to process it at times until yep. you have that penny drop moment where you go, oh, that's why I'm feeling that way. And sometimes you actually never learn. Sometimes mm. you never find out. You know, it's not it's not a precise science, you know. Mm. Sometimes we work it out and sometimes we don't. And so, you know, in those times when, you know, that signal comes up from the body, we experience it as fear or more specifically as embarrassment, you know, sometimes over time we do make that connection and we can do something about it. Sometimes we don't. And when we don't, I think, it's really a case of going back to our values once again because, you know, they are the guide for our behaviours. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, I'm feeling embarrassed. I've got no idea why, you know, now what? Who mm-hmm. do I want to be in this moment? How do I show up and how do I move forward? And, you know, as I said, generally speaking, our feelings are not good guides to, you know, ongoing behaviour. They might signal a specific issue that needs our attention But if we were to let that embarrassment actually kind of run us, Mm. you know, we may find ourselves avoiding people in situations because embarrassment's quite uncomfortable. Mm. If I live with my values and one of my values is connection, I might go, okay, I'm feeling uncomfortable. I've got no idea what it is, but you know what? I want to connect with this person because that's what I value. I want to help this person to feel at ease. I want to feel at ease. So I'm going to talk to this person because even though I know I can feel some discomfort here, you know what? Not going to kill me. Mm-hmm. I can I can move forward and it's okay. And I know that even though I'm acutely aware of my embarrassment, there's a really good chance they're not. Fantastic. Yeah. So, look, Tony, I've got a question for you that I like to ask all of our guests. Ooh. If you're going to start a book tomorrow, what would, it, what would you write on? What would it be? <laughs> Thank you for asking that question, Steve. I started a book some weeks ago. I am in the process of writing a book. So hang on, let me ask you again. Tony, if you started a book three weeks ago, yep. what, would you, what would you be writing on? I would be writing on how to overcome childhood adversity so that you can show up in relationships um, in a way that is consistent with your values. Mm, that's a long title. Yeah, it is a long title. It's not the title. Yes, I am. The the working title so far is Love with Confidence. Love with Confidence. I like it. Love with Confidence. Yep, that's right because that's what people want. They they want to be able to love and ideally with some kind of confidence about it. Uh, And so the good news in my book, and it is a good news book, is that so many of us grew up with either trauma Mm. or more subtly and 
subtle in that people don't recognise it, Mm. childhoods that weren't ideal in terms of our emotional needs being either just abused or neglected. Um, I've spoken to many people that struggle in relationships and eventually the penny drops in terms of their connection with their own childhood. Um, Now, it's not to blame our parents because Mm. a lot of this stuff is intergenerational, but it is to help us to understand that it's not burned into our psyche. We weren't born with it. It's not genetic. We're not broken. We're not faulty. We're not. It's not a. It's not a part of us others. that can't be changed or moved or Pre- adjusted to or precisely. Yeah. And so, when we understand that there is a childhood connection, that the beliefs that run our lives were learned. Mm. Um, as kids and therefore we can unlearn them. I like to say they were borrowed from our parents and key adults in our life and Mm. there comes a time where you actually want to give back the ones that don't work. Not literally, Mm. but it's recognising that we didn't get to define ourselves as children necessarily. That was done for us, but as adults we can do that and so we can change our beliefs about ourselves and then learn the key skills like being able to regulate our emotions, like being able to ask for what we want and have good, clear personal boundaries, mm. um, like being able to let go of past trauma and distress, those things that can sometimes come up and interfere in our life. And I think it's interesting when you said that is that, um, you know, for, for so many people um, they, they would hear that and they would be like, no, no, my childhood was great. My parents are amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah, I hear uh, it all the time. Yeah, yeah, and it's that it's that almost uh, you feel like you're betraying someone if you mm-hmm. you know admit that there was maybe something that could be different. And what was really helpful for, for, for to me was when someone actually said, "I want you to remove the concept of love and loyalty and you know all those things out of that situation because even you as a parent, you know that you've made mistakes. Sure, you know you know that in some way I will have done something that will, you know, handicap my children to be whatever, you know, and they've got, to, they've got to learn through that. So it's not actually about saying my parents did a bad job, mm. do you know, or that I had a bad childhood or, that, you know, whatever the reason is. It's actually about going this was the childhood that I had, however good or bad it is, how do I move forward from there? Exactly. How do I learn from that experience? But I think for a lot of people the key part is actually stopping to say if I actually admit that I need to change something, then I'm sort of saying that my childhood, my parents, my upbringing was was, was wrong or bad or incorrect or whatever else. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that you've captured quite well um, the attitudes of many people that, you know, present for therapy. Um, not everybody. Everyone's mm. slightly different. But, yeah, we, we don't make that connection to our childhoods for a number of reasons, you know, for, you know, out of loyalty to our parents, out of not wanting to be, to seem that we are blaming them. Mm. Um, but for many of my clients, I find that their definition of what a good childhood is, well, well they, in many ways their childhood was good, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if you get, again, if you if you get, get down to details, down to specifics, we can be provided for in many important ways and yet find that, our emotional needs weren't necessarily cared for as well as they could have been. Mm. And so mm. my book is definitely not about blame the parents. Mm. It, it, it's the opposite really. It's helping people to see that, look, absolutely their upbringing was a factor, okay, in what's going on. But 
only to understand that because now as adults they have choice. They didn't have choice when they were young. So, you know, people find themselves doing you know, what they would consider terrible things in relationships and feel like they're a very bad person. You know, what we're saying is, look, childhood factors certainly had a role in this. But you know what? You're an adult now. You get to choose who you are. You get to choose how you show up in relationships. You get to choose the actions that you take. Mm -hmm. Now, I know I'm making that sound deceptively simple. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's not that easy. But I think for many people, it's a little bit easier than they think it is. Mm. And so I really encourage people to, to, you know, to take the steps to really put their past in the past. Yeah, yeah. That's a great line, that. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> Look, I mean, yeah, if you take an emotional, uh, you know, the emotions out of it, I mean, a good example is bias. And I know we've discussed this before, Hamish, that people come, you know, into the financial sector with with different biases that they've picked up either from their parents, their childhood, their school life, that whatever they've learned. It's not about going it was bad or wrong or it was terrible, but, but actually recognising where your bias come from, recognising, for instance, your, your parents might say property is the only way to wealth. Yeah. You know, uh, that isn't a bad thing, but it's important to recognise that that's what you see as being, you know, really the most effective way forward because you're not going to look at managed funds or any other thing if that's if that's all you think about. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, a less emotional thing, but it's still really important to actually go, okay, this is what, my belief is this is where it's come from. Mm -hmm. Now, how do I mould, change, adjust that to be something else, to be more beneficial to me? Yeah, we, we are all biased, mm. you know. Well, it's not just, I mean, it is biased and I'm just playing around with this and the, it's almost conditioning as well. Mm. Sure. You know, we're conditioned to um, watch movies, mm -hmm. right, and then think that this is what family life looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's it's Steve Martin and 12 kids and all ever, all having fun, you know, yep. like, mm -hmm. or, or whatever it happens to be. And, and of course, because those movies are the ones itself, you know, yep. they're mm -hmm. the stories yep. that make us laugh or cry or whatever. Or if you want to really go to the 60s, you know, the perfect Brady Bunch. Yeah. I actually don't know of a blended family that uh, has such a good, <laughs> you know, family unit cohesion with two parents that love each other and six kids that all get along and, you know, and a maid, and, and a maid that with her butcher boyfriend. You know, like it's, it's and it's you're right. It is that conditioning to if we don't have that, we assume that's normal. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's part of that growing up, isn't it? It's realizing that this conditioning, you know, mm. even education. You think if you go to school and then we reflect on oh, totally. how many of the subjects do we actually use in real life, and we go, okay, I know there was a purpose why they taught me all this stuff, but it's still lost on me. <laughs> yeah, thirty years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Anything mathematical, I, I kind of go. Lost on me. Lost on me. <laughs> I'm glad you guys know maths. Not well, my actually, thing. If you don't mind, that's actually an interesting segue because, you know, one of the questions that I've reflected on, especially with you, because you are a different personality to especially me and maybe Steve as well, is is going on this journey of doing these modules for Help My Wealth. Uh, you know, have there been any, I guess, um, moments or key, you know, penny drop moments where you've sort of gone, ah, oh, okay, this is actually possibly more important than I gave it credit for originally. Yeah. Yeah? Uh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Look, whenever I get the opportunity to bring my knowledge together, I mean, like doing this this 
interview, for example, mm. but but certainly with the Help My Wealth Project, um, when you get the opportunity to bring all the information together in a way that's, um, that needs to be clear for other people, um, that whole process always gives me, you know, new ways of looking at things. I always learn something. Mm. It's like writing the book. It's, mm. it's it's happening there as well. Yeah. I think one of the key things that came out of um, Help My Wealth when I when I collaborated there um, was the importance of early beliefs. Mm. And this is something that, as I said before, is coming up as very key in my book. You know, if I reflect on my own upbringing, there wasn't a lot of money. It wasn't ever really talked about. And so I sort of got to adulthood completely clueless about it, you know. Um, And again, I I wouldn't, you know, my parents weren't saying, look, money's evil and you shouldn't think about money. It just wasn't a topic. It just wasn't on their radar and therefore it wasn't on my radar, you know. So I guess, you know, I got the message because it wasn't talked about that it's just not a thing. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, and so I had the opportunity to reflect on my early experience and see how formative that was. And, again, unless we deliberately do that, we don't often make those connections. And mm. I actually think those connections are, you know, quite important. Mm. Yeah, I, I like making them. We can't always, we don't always have the luxury to see the connection of where we are now to our childhood. Sometimes it remains forever unknown. Mm-hmm. But when we can, uh, I find those aha moments particularly useful and I know my clients do as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah. Well, look, I know for me, um, especially when I've been doing sales training and, and you know, mentoring in the business world, um, I often talk about the idea that uh, someone's skill can be, t- you can teach someone, you can increase their skill level, it can be taught. Yeah. But I find what's actually almost more important is the attitude and, and what happens. And I've often used this example of saying, you know, your, your boss calls you up and says, Hamish, done an amazing job, like blown away. I was talking to the, you know, the assistant manager. They've been saying how good you are and how well you've done. You're getting a bonus, you know, this month. It's going to be, I don't know, $500 and, uh, and you're getting the, you know, the employee of the month award. Mm-hmm. What's Hamish like that day? He mm-hmm. is on the ball, he's selling left, right and centre, he's calling up contacts, he's happy as everything, he's giving nudges to people going, got a, got a call from the boss, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can't say what it was but, you know, it's good. Next day, same guy calls you up, boss calls you up and he says, Hamish, I'm, I'm really sorry, it's a bit embarrassing but it, it wasn't you, Hamish, it's the other Hamish. It is odd we've got two Hamishes in the office, but we do in this scenario. And that Hamish, uh, he's the one that's been doing really well, so I'm sorry, but he's actually getting the bonus. Mm. Uh, now, funny story, um, because uh, you did come up, I actually did speak to the other manager about you and he's been saying they've had some problems with you recently and we do need to have a sit-down and have a, have a talk. Yeah. So I've actually scheduled that for tomorrow. Um, so you, me, and you know Sarah, we're going to sit down. We're going to talk about where you're at and uh, what your direction is in the company. Mm. What's Hamish's day like? Mm. Yeah, it is a terrible day. You know, he's embarrassed. It's hard. It's but his skill hasn't changed. Mm. His skill level and who he is did not change from one day to the other. It was his attitude. It was the what was happening around him. It was his concepts around happiness and contentment. It was all of those stuff. And so when we brought the the behavioral psychology modules in to help my wealth, for me, that was the, 
That was the whole concept is that we can show people how to do cash flow. We can show people how to do budgeting. We can talk about investments. We can set people up with goals and we can set people up to really know where they're heading. But without that behavioral psychology coming in and helping people to get their private world ordered, uh, I think it's actually a, like a large part missing. Mm. So it was really great to have you come in, take that project on. Uh, and also it was really good because you, you know, you really got into it. You really loved it and it became your project and, you know, you drove it much further than when Hamish and I were ever talking about doing, okay. uh, which was fantastic. Do you know what I mean? And, and it went places that, uh, that um, you know, we love to see. And I actually found I got, I got quite educated through it as well. So I really appreciate you doing that. Oh, thanks. Look, yeah, it was it was really enjoyable. And I think that, you know, we all agree that decisions about finance reflect decisions in general. Mm. You know, decisions are part of, you know, the way we think, what we feel. Yeah. Our conditioning, as we said earlier, you know, these are decisions, they're actions. And so if you think about it at that very basic level, you really can't divorce good financial decisions from the human that's making them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so it's one thing to have the information and the knowledge, but without, you know, I guess looking at the being that is taking this information and making decisions and taking action on it, if you don't consider that side of things, you haven't really got a complete service. Yeah. You know, and so th I think that it is critically important that people understand, you know, how they bring their experience, their thinking style, um, their typical behaviours, their preferences, their motivation, their attitudes. It sounds like an awful lot, but the modules themselves, I think, break that down fairly simply. And yep. while there's more and more and more that could be included sure. because it's very complex. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of the basic things are there as a great starting point to help people to, you know, to realise that they're a person. Mm. They're not a computer that crunches numbers. And it's important to understand who this is. Yep. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming today. And uh, we've really appreciated, um, you know, coming on the, the Money Rules, Money Rules podcast and uh, helping to expand upon what you did for us, you know, with the, with the Help My Wealth modules. But um, very much appreciate your time uh, and it was great having you. Mm, thank you very much. Yeah, it was really an absolute it. pleasure. Love chatting. Great. Well, for all the listeners that are out there, thank you again for being a part of this podcast and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Bye. The information discussed by the Help My Wealth and the Money Rules, Money Rules podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is generally nature and it is not advice. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. It is aimed to provide a general understanding of each topic and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. It is strongly suggested that you seek professional advice regarding your own individual circumstances before making a financial decision. Help My Wealth and the hosts of the Money Rules and Money Rules podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. In the spirit of reconciliation, Help My Wealth and the Money Rules or Money Rules podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia 
and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to past, present and emerging Elders. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Thank you.